This morning's Old Testament reading comes to us from the book of Isaiah, 28th chapter, beginning at verse 14 and continuing through verse 19. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Listen, he says, to the word of the Lord, you arrogant men who make this, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You say, we have made a treaty with death and signed a pact with Sheol, so that when the raging flood sweeps by, it shall not touch us. For we have taken refuge in lies sheltered behind falsehood. These then are the words of the Lord God. Look, I am laying a stone in Zion, a block of granite, a precious cornerstone for a firm foundation. He who has faith shall not waver. I will use justice as a plumb line and righteousness as a plummet. Hail shall sweep away your refuge of lies and floodwaters carry away your shelter. Then your treaty with death shall be annulled and your pact with Sheol shall not stand. The raging waters will sweep by and you will be like land swept by the flood. As often as it sweeps by, it will take you. Morning after morning, it will sweep by. Day and night, the very thought of such tidings will bring nothing but dismay. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Colossians in the second chapter, verse 6 and continuing through verse 15. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Each of us gathered here this morning has probably received and accepted a call from the Lord Jesus. 
If you aren't sure, or if you know that you haven't, I encourage you to speak with me one-on-one. -on -one. If you have, here's a friendly little reminder from the Apostle Paul. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. The Christian fellowship in Colossae had, it seems, received word of the good news of the gospel of Jesus, and many, at least, had begun to believe in it, both in his messiahship and in his message. Things were going swimmingly there for a while, but then some rival theologies cropped up, and before you know it, the faithful had become, well, less faithful. And Paul pointed to the danger of outside influences when he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe. For we who are in the pews and the pulpits of Christian houses of worship today, Paul's cautionary tone bears hearing across the ages. The lion continues to lie in wait, never far from potential prey. We may not often think of it in such terms, but we beseech God for protection every time we recite the Lord's Prayer. In an introduction to a study guide of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, the author observes, this story contained herein can easily be our story. In everyday life situations, we can choose God's will or evil's will, but we always have a choice. From the Christian perspective, to be ignorant of the spiritual realm and demonic strategies to influence choices and exploit our weaknesses is dangerous. Fortunately, as Christians, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit who provides us clarity of thought and cuts through devilish manipulations so that we might discover refreshing, simple, straightforward truth. This is what Paul is preaching to the Christians in his day at Colossae. It is also the way I hear his words speaking to us here and now. If there were philosophies and empty deceits in the time of Paul, we have had nearly another 2,000 years of human tradition under the bridge to codify the old and to introduce even more attractive heresies, which are not, in the apostles' words, according to Christ. As Paul elsewhere describes Jesus, he's the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together, he tells the Ephesian church, and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. In an afterword, written ten years following the first edition of another of Lewis's many works, the author reflects upon what he would have done differently in the authorship of that book and what he learned through the wisdom that had come to him in the intervening years. 
Lewis is self-critical of his use of the phrase romanticism to describe any number of false views of the world as he understood it to have been too nebulous a term to use, trying to lighten, to tighten it up rather. He approached it from several angles and he placed it side by side with a less romantic but more Christian worldview and said, it appeared to me therefore that if a man diligently followed this desire, pursuing the false objects until their falsity appeared and then resolutely abandoning them, he must come out at last into a clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given, nay, cannot even be imagined as given in our present mode of subjective and spatial-temporal experience. The desire was in the soul, as the siege perilous in Arthur's castle, the chair in which only one, only one could sit. And if nature makes nothing in vain, the one who can sit in this chair must exist and does exist on the throne in heaven and in our hearts. And this sounds in more modern language rather quite like what Paul is saying in his letter to the Colossians. You know, deep down, you know what's real. You were told it, you embraced it, and you feel it. So there is no reason at all to go after romantic notions of something that might be better. For there is no improvement to be had on the divinely perfect. As I think about what he's arguing, I'm reminded of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I probably tried to forget about after school. But you may remember from your time in the academy, uh, it's often illustrated as this pyramid with a wide base and decreasingly wide blocks as it makes its way to the top. And it is vaguely imagined in the image that you'll find this morning on the front of the bulletin. Each of these levels represents needs, things which the scientists who came up with this suggest that people have to have in order to progress upward on this hierarchy. It begins at the bottom with the physical basics, things like food and clothing and shelter, and it concludes with the capstone, which is termed self-actualization. Of that, they claim, is a state of enlightenment which only a select number of people throughout history have ever arrived at. Now, from the standpoint of Paul's argument to the Colossians, they have already ascended to the top of the theological hierarchy of needs. Every need, every desire has already been fulfilled in them through Christ Jesus. It just doesn't get any better than this. And yet, and yet, some, or more than some of them, And yes, some or more than some of us descend from the top and go traipsing off after something that seems momentarily to be superior, something that is thought to be a root of greater fulfillment, but one that will ultimately prove 
to be far inferior. Such is the life of those always looking for the next best thing. Such was the case with many in the early church at Colossae and elsewhere. Such is the case with many today. Paul reminds his brothers and sisters in the faith that they have already come to know the one who is the all in all, the one who can satisfy not just every longing we have in the moment, but also every longing we will ever have in every future moment as well. He's already done for us what we could never do by ourselves, relieving us of the wages of sin that we have all garnered. What could possibly be better than the promise of an eternity in his loving presence? But Paul is worried nonetheless that some would suggest that there are for them things in the here and now that they've heard at least, if not being equivalent, they are intriguing in value to the promises of God. The apostle knows of these sketchy promises, the schemes from the tempter that are loose in the world and out of love for his brothers and sisters, he is imploring them not to place their trust in the powers and the principalities, the ones that sought to defeat Jesus, those same powers and principalities that seek to defeat those who would call himself his followers. These are, he's reminding his audience, the same rulers and authorities that Christ had disarmed and made a public example of triumphing over them in all things. Sadly, as the sheer number of things to be had and ideas to be held in this world has increased, the defections among the formerly faithful are becoming commonplace. Just look at the surveys of religious affiliation among people in this country for a glimpse of the quantitative stark reality. With increasing pace over the last couple of generations, Americans have been abandoning our faith. The self-reported nuns, the atheists and agnostics, account for about a third of recent respondents, and the numbers of the spiritual but not religious have swelled. Only four in ten Americans now say that religion is important in their lives. Qualitatively, just have a look around this or pretty much any sanctuary during worship on a Sunday or a Saturday, as the case may be, and it's obvious that the numbers present aren't what they were 30 or 15 or even five years ago. In fact, at the recent rate of decline, there will be no Protestant church in this country within two generations. It seems Paul was not only an apostle, but he was also a prophet. For what he was warning the Colossians of then has since come to pass in our own lifetime. What to do? What to do, O oh church? One, day, one way of addressing that question is to reread just what it was Paul was teaching. Continue, he says, to live your lives in him, Jesus. Carry on. Don't give up. To paraphrase a familiar saying, when the going gets tough, the beloved keep going. 
Keep responding to that call that's been placed on your life by the one who created and sustains it. And just in case it may have slipped your mind, a quick reminder here, that isn't you. Paul's second bit of advice is that we are to be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Along with Epaphras, who is credited at the beginning of this letter, alongside Paul, as teachers of those at Colossae and throughout this valley that includes several other, other Roman cities. Unlike most everything else over the last two millennia, the message that they were teaching then has not changed. And perhaps that's why it's seemingly going out of favor with so many. But the word that was taught then is still the truth. You can still read it for yourself. And as you do, may you respond with thanksgiving as we realize yet again all that's been done for us. I think we need reminding in part because what's been done for us is so hard to grasp onto. In part because we can't see it, we can't smell it, we can't hear it, we can't taste it, we can't feel it. And those are the things that we want. The same was true of those who had the privilege of encountering the Messiah during his earthly ministry. Yes, they could see and they could hear and they could touch him, but they could not perceive what he was doing for them, for us all. That's why he was performing signs and wonders as we studied this morning in our Sunday school class about the raising of Lazarus. Yes, it was done to benefit Lazarus, but it was done for all those people who had come from Jerusalem to be part of the mourning of his untimely death. This is why Jesus was performing signs and wonders, miracles of healing and feeding and freeing. These were the things that could be experienced, but as beneficial as they were for the ones who directly received them, they were transient and mere metaphors for the much deeper, more expansive and permanent healing and raising that Jesus was bringing to the whole world. And it is just precisely that, this deep, unseen, but immensely important work, this tremendous gift of love that makes possible again a covenant relationship between us and our Heavenly Father, it is this that Paul taught and this that we are to be continually thankful for. No one, not you, nor I, nor the church, not the purveyors of modern-day philosophies and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, no one can give you more than you already have in Christ Jesus. He is the cornerstone, the keystone, and the capstone, the foundation of our individual lives and our corporate life together. He is our rock and our redeemer, the one to whose call alone we are made to respond now and forevermore. And for that, we may truly say,
Thanks be to God. And amen.